This is your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 112 with guest Kelly Deals. All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 112. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Thank you for being here on another episode of today's podcast. And as I'm recording this, it's 1225 on a Tuesday, and I have successfully been putting off doing this intro for a few hours. I have agonized overdoing this intro, and guess how many intros I've agonized over in 112 episodes? Zero. Zero episodes have I ever agonized over the intro, and I'll tell you why. It's because today I'm talking about something I've never talked about before on my podcast. I've never talked about it on my blog. I've never talked about it in a class. I've never talked about it publicly. And that topic is racism. And you might be wondering why this topic, because obviously it's an important one. I mean, that's a no brainer. And I'm passionate about a lot of different social matters like media literacy and the over-sexualization of girls and women and sex trafficking and autism awareness and LGBTQ rights. But the reason I'm talking about this now on the podcast is because I think there are some listeners who might relate to my experience as a white woman growing up in the United States and maybe can learn from this conversation I'm about to have with Kelly Deals, my friend. Also, what dawned on me uh, kind of recently, actually, is that if I am a woman who is passionate about female equality and considers herself a feminist, if I want things like equal pay and the same rights for women, I feel like if I'm not talking about this topic, if I'm not talking about racism and equality for all people, I'm sort of being a hypocrite. And... By not talking about it, I feel like I'm saying equality for all women that look like me. And that's just shitty. I can't do that. And once I realized that, the hypocrisy of it, I realized there was a lot of things actually that made me realize I needed to have this conversation. So to be perfectly honest, maybe selfishly, I'm here talking about this as a way of apologizing for my own ignorance of for decades, and maybe it's a way for me to process the feelings around it. And for the record, I know that equal rights for people of color matter more than white people's feelings. I do absolutely know that. But I think for people who are listening who might just be sort of waking up to the reality and the magnitude of this problem, I needed to at least mention that. At any rate, I thought it would be helpful to do all of this out loud, and basically I have some intentions for this episode. The first one is I want to talk about my journey as a white person in America and how for me, coming to terms with my own racism and how I did not even realize I was participating in the problem, how I've unknowingly contributed, and what I'm doing, feeling, and thinking now. 
as I have woken up and continue to wake up about this topic. The second intention is I wanted to and have to walk my talk that in order to create change, we need to have these tough, uncomfortable conversations. I'm open to talking about a lot of hard topics, but this one has been probably the most uncomfortable yet. And I'm going to talk in a minute why this is so incredibly uncomfortable, not just for me, but I think for a lot of white people. And the third intention is that I wanted to encourage you to get honest with yourself. I promise, my promise to you is that I will be 100% honest in this episode. And I can also 100% guarantee that I'm going to want to throw up the entire episode. I will, you'll hear me mention that to Kelly as well. Because at the end of the day, you guys, like this podcast is about living your kick-ass life, right? It's about you gaining the skills to have conversations Because it's not just about you learning the skills and doing it all on your own alone. If you've taken any of my classes and if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know I talk a lot about having these tough conversations. Every single client that has come to me and everyone in my students ends up having to face that day where they have a hard conversation with someone. And it's usually the stuff that no one wants to talk about. That's how you create change. Typically, no one wants to talk about vulnerability or shame and fear. And I ask you regularly to talk about those things. I teach classes on how to do this. And that's what this podcast episode is about. Me having one of those hard conversations and inviting you to do the same. So this isn't a podcast telling you to run out right now and join a Black Lives Matter chapter or speak out publicly on Facebook about this if you're scared. But by God, if you want to do that, then please go do it. Today is about talking about something that needs to be talked about. And again, I'm really uncomfortable having this conversation. I am uncomfortable right now saying all these words to you. I am afraid. I'm afraid of saying the wrong things. As someone who is so new to this conversation, there's a good chance I'm going to get it wrong. All the other stuff I talk about, all the 111 episodes before this and the years of blogging, I, I felt pretty damn comfortable talking about it. Today, I do not. I'm afraid people will say, please don't. Please go back to just regular personal development stuff and save this topic for real activists. I'm afraid that some of you listening are going to be rolling your eyes and turning it off. And you know what? That's the risk that I take. However, I feel called to do this. I have never felt called to appease the critics. I have never felt called to make everyone comfortable. I mean, that's definitely what my inner critic tells me, but that's not my truth. That's not the true wisest spiritual thing that has called me. I was called to create space and permission to talk about things that matter, to talk about the stuff that nobody wants to talk about, to talk about the things that make us uncomfortable. I was called to encourage everyone to be brave while at the same time being brave myself. And I sure as hope I'm doing that for you today. And again, this is a conversation that I will most likely say the wrong thing somewhere in it. I will possibly offend someone. It will be messy and imperfect. And if I let that stop me, I probably wouldn't do anything ever. So again, I am bringing on my friend Kelly Deals, who is brilliant, and I have the utmost respect for her. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her in just a minute. One more thing, though, before I bring you the episode and tell you about Kelly. 
if you are a woman of color, this is something I have never even thought to mention before, but I want you to know that you are welcome here in the Your Kick-Ass Life community. If you are a lesbian or if you are transgender, if you identify as a woman, you are welcome in my community and in my classes always. I don't ever want any woman to feel excluded from my community based on her race or sexual orientation. I'm going to tell you a quick story before we get going here. And this was part of the conversation I had with Kelly and it was after we stopped recording. We were chatting a little bit and I was telling her about when we first moved here to North Carolina and I really wanted to join some kind of, I mean, I wanted to do a lot of different things and, you know, build a community here and make friends and things like that. And I really think it's so awesome that people do spoken word and even poetry slams and stuff like that. So I researched online and went to meetup.com as I tell y'all to do, to go make friends. Meetup.com is a great place to do that, right? That's like one of my things that I tell people to do. So I went and I looked and I found a group and it was a poetry group and I was looking at the members because you can see the members in each group and they were all black women. And by all, I mean, there was like five. It wasn't like it was 500. It was about five and they have these monthly meetings and I immediately thought to myself, I'm not going to belong there. And I am not going to go be the only white woman there. And what if it's just, oh, you know, I made up all these stories about how I wouldn't be welcome. And you guys, this was probably like eight months ago or something. You know, this was a while back. And I had told my mastermind girls about it. You know, it's like, I want to do this thing, but I don't know. Wah, wah, poor me. I don't think it's for me. And that was it. And I never went. And so I'm telling Kelly this story about how I made up these stories that I wasn't going to be welcome there and I didn't want to go and be the only white woman. And she paused and I knew exactly what she was going to say. And she said, that's how black women have felt their entire life. And I said, well, and it made me think about a couple of things. It made me think, oh my God, have I done this in my own community with y'all, with my, your kick-ass life community. And that's one of the reasons I want to make sure that I don't make anyone feel excluded. And I know that the majority of my audience looks like me. And I don't want anyone to feel like just because the majority of my audience are white women, that any other woman is excluded. And the second part is that I'm going to go to that poetry group it's summer right now as I'm recording this and it doesn't look like there was, I need to find out. I'm not making excuses. <laughs> I need to just email the moderator. That's what their name is and see when they're meeting and go and see what happens. And I'll be afraid and I'll be uncomfortable and I'm going to go. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about Kelly. Kelly Deals considers herself a writer, mother, lover, and a fighter. She's a copywriter and a marketing communications specialist. She specializes in website content. She's a brilliant writer, by the way, and integrated online campaigns. She's also a freelance writer over at Salon, Jezebel, and XO Jane. She's a bachelor's degree in political science, and she calls herself an unrepentant feminist. Her feminism is about justice, love, and justice. You can find out more about her at kellydeals.com. That's D-I-E-L-S.com. And without further ado, 
Here is the conversation on race I had with Kelly. Ask Kickers, welcome to sort of a special edition of the podcast, episode 112, for those of you who are interested in going to see the show notes. I am talking today with my friend, Kelly Deals, and Kelly, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here, too. As I told everyone in my introduction, this is probably the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done here on the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here to talk to me about this, and it's something that I've wanted to talk about for a while, and I just haven't been able to sort of wrap my head around what it's going to look like. And I sort of felt like if I'm going to wait until I have it all figured out, I'm going to be waiting forever. So we might as well just kind of start before I'm ready. So thank you for kind of like stumbling. <laughs> I'm the one stumbling my way through it. You are more versed on this topic. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk about this. Thanks. And you know what? I think we're all stumbling through this. And I think that sort of idea that we should get started before you're ready, get started before you're the expert, get started mm -hmm. before you have all the resources at your fingertips. You know, that's how we do everything. Right. That's the way we've got to approach this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've said this on Facebook too. It's like, I'm very much worried about saying the wrong thing. And I probably will say the wrong thing and listen back to the recording and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. But it's sort of just the way this works. And I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, we are kind of all stumbling through this. And so let me start from the top. And as I was talking about Again, in the introduction, what I wanted from this episode is questions I've been hearing in private conversations with my white friends about these certain terms that are getting thrown around when we are reading about racism and things like that. And one of those terms is systematic racism. Can you explain what that is in layperson's terms? What does that actually mean? Okay, so here's a parallel. So we all know in the world that there are patterns of discrimination against women, right? Like there's problems mm -hmm. in the workplace that mean women don't rise at the level of their ambition or their potential. And there's actual blocks in the corporate workplace around us advancing, especially if we're mothers. And it's a pattern. It doesn't have anything to do with individual ability. It's just the way that the workplace was built. It was built around the interests and way that men's lives were built. And so that's just the way it's structured. It doesn't mean that, you know, your boss or the people around you have an active hate on for women mm -hmm. or an active desire to hate women or hold women back. It's kind of just this way that we go with the flow because that's the way the institutions and our culture is built and it just becomes normal so we don't even see it. It's like we're in water and we don't even know we're wet. It's the same thing for systemic racial discrimination or institutionalized racism. This is just the way that our society was built from mm -hmm. the get-go. And there are certain attitudes that are built into it. It doesn't matter so much if people have, you know, are active racists, you know, with a burning hatred in their heart for people of color. That certainly exists, but what exists and has more weight is the fact that all of our institutions and sort of patterns and laws and processes are built on that. So even if the people showing up for their jobs and showing up as public servants are just carrying out their responsibilities, the structures that they work in were built around these assumptions. 
What it reminds me of is in the work I do with women, we use this really great metaphor that Brene Brown came up with and we call it the arena. So it's like any vulnerable moment that you walk into, we call the arena. And then she also, in this metaphor, there are different sections of the arena. So there's like the cheap seats and those are the people that like hurl advice and are critical. And then there's all these different areas. But one in particular that I thought of when you were explaining that is what she refers to as the box seats. And she says the box seats are the people that built the arena and they want that arena to look like them. So they built the arena for people that look like them. And that's sort of what I thought of when you mentioned that. So it's kind of like... That's exactly what it is. Yeah. What I also kind of heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that these people don't necessarily, they're not racist or white supremacists. They just built the arena or built, you know, a company or built a organization because that's what they knew. And they built it for people that were just like them. Oh, that's a charitable interpretation. Okay. (laughs) Some people are actively (laughs) racist and white supremacist. And like the system was actually built on white supremacy. Like that's how America was founded, right? Like slavery and genocide is how America was founded. So like that, we can't sort of shy away from that. That horrible reality is really there. And the reality is there are white supremacists at all levels of our institutions. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm saying that I believe, and perhaps I am naive, I do believe that most people that I encounter in my daily life aren't raging white supremacists. What they are is oblivious. And that's not okay. We need to wake up Mm -hmm. and we need to do the work. It's not enough to just not be racist. In order for us to affect change and make a just world, we have to actually be anti-racist. We actually have to be doing work to end racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And maybe I was being charitable there. And it's interesting. I had a conversation last week with our mutual friend, Desiree Lynn Attaway. Desiree is brilliant. And I will link to her website in her show notes because she's so great. And I want to have her on as well. But What I was talking to her about is that she was asking me some really great questions just to sort of, for her to get to know other people's experiences and for me to think about my own experiences. But the conversation that we had revolved around those words, racist and white supremacist, because what I was telling her is that when I hear those words, I would never think of myself, first of all, like, especially white supremacist, that term to me is like skinheads, like those scary girls on Orange is the New Black with the tattoos on their necks and the KKK and, you know, these, these hate groups. And I am definitely not that. And so what I was telling Desiree was that now that I have been really kind of immersing myself in what white privileges and what institutionalized racism looks like. And I told her this. she did not put these words in my mouth. I said, I feel like I am a product of white supremacy without even knowing it. Like you were saying, like just totally oblivious. And for me, and I mentioned this in the intro too, it's like when I realized I was an alcoholic, it was like three months before I did anything about it. And those three months were agonizing of just knowing that there was a problem that I needed to do something about. And that's kind of how I have felt about this is like, oh my God, I'm a product of this system. And how could I just not do anything about it? And the same thing with the word racism too. It's like, I would have never, ever deemed myself a racist. And after learning about what it actually looks like, I was like, oh my God, Yes, I absolutely am. And it's an emotional kind of reckoning with myself, I guess, which we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But I think that for lack of a better 
analogy. I think most people look at it as black or white. It's like either you're a racist or you're not. Do you see where I'm kind of going with this? (laughs) I agree with everything you said. I believe that my experiences in the culture that I'm growing up in, I am a product of white supremacy. So you are, for the people listening, because they can't see you, you're a white woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm a white woman. And I want to add to this piece so that people can relate to where I'm coming from. My husband is black. My children are biracial. So, you know, we have a multicultural and multi-ethnic home. And, you know, this is probably the cause for my awakening is as my children are starting to move out into the world, I am seeing how their experiences in the world are incredibly different than my experiences in the world. Mm -hmm. And I am seeing that they get treated in a particular way until people realize that they're with me or until I show up at the school and people take a step back. And it's so in my face. Like there's no way not to acknowledge that this is the way the world is. And it is shocking. And I I'm looking at my own racism now, because what I think is like, you're born in America, you are an American, there's no way not to be an American. Mm-hmm. We are born into white supremacist culture. As white people, we benefit from it, and it's invisible, and we don't even see it. How are we not to be racist? It's the voice of culture working through us without our permission. And as soon as we wake up and realize that it's using us like puppets, then we take back the strings. You said that, you know, you sort of grew up and in this culture as well. So can you give me some examples of how you sort of saw your own racism? Yeah, I can give you like a really embarrassing example. When I first came online in 2008, 2009, 2010, I got a gig as a paid columnist for ProBlogger. And that was a really big deal at the time. And I wrote this piece about a Biggie song Mm -hmm. and about how we as bloggers can look to hip hop artists for inspiration. And it was like this lighthearted, long winded, rambling piece. And I thought it was, you know, funny. And now I look at it and I look at this and I'm like, what I'm basically assuming when I'm writing this piece is that the audience is white Mm -hmm. and that it's somehow funny or interesting to look to black people coming out of the projects as inspiration. That is my own racism. That is me thinking that black people who come out of the projects don't know. Do you see the assumptions that I'm pointing Mm -hmm. out there? Like the assumption is that it's funny for white people to look to black people for inspiration. So implicitly and explicitly, that's me believing some really racist nonsense that didn't even cross your mind as you were writing the piece. And let me tell you how disgusting that is, Andrea. I have black children and I had black children when I wrote that and I didn't even see my own racism. Mm -hmm. So for me as a white woman to be parenting black children and not confront my own racism is just vile on so many levels. So like, I have work to do, and I am on a mission to unlearn what my culture has programmed into me. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. Since we're sharing, <laughs> thank you for that. I could tell it was a hard story for you to tell, even though it was years ago. So I want to give people an example of my own thinking and my own racism. And again, this is something I'm just realizing as I'm having more conversations with people of color and of white people just about this topic in general. So 
I was actually watching, I don't know if you've seen it. It's really great if you haven't seen it. It's streaming on Netflix. There's two separate mini documentary series. One is the 60s and one is the 70s. Tom Hanks is one of the producers. It's really great. And on each of those decades, they start out with the different TV shows and things from that decade. And I was born in 1975. So I grew up, you know, some of my favorite shows were the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, no racism in that show at all. <laughs> and what else? And I, and I was trying to think, what were the black shows that were in my childhood. And we had Sanford and Son and we had good times. But I remember like that was sort of like my impression. And just to kind of paint the picture, I grew up in a community, a suburb that was probably 90 to 95% white. So what I learned about black people was mostly from TV. I mean, even this is just as a young child, because nobody talked about it in my family. We were a white family. I grew up thinking that black people were very different than me and they lived their lives very different from me and they didn't have as good of a life as I did. And also I remember when the Cosby show first started and I distinctly remember thinking the mom is a lawyer and the dad is a doctor. Kelly, I thought that was like make-believe. It makes me emotional even to say that. Like I didn't think that that could happen. And it seemed like such a far-fetched notion to me. They really seemed make-believe. I mean, look at Different Strokes. I mean, that was a huge show that I grew up on. And Mr. Drummond, you know, adopted the two black kids and, you know, saved them. Like, I'm just kind of trying to paint a picture of, like, what I grew up saying. And as a child, where we learned the most about our world, that's really what I saw. And then fast forward into high school, I felt like we were pretty segregated. We were predominantly white. And there was the groups of the white kids and there was the groups of the black kids. And I remember they had like a club or something that was some kind of black history club. And I remember having the conversation with one of my friends saying like, well, why don't we have like a white history club? And, you know, and I'm just like so horrified that I would even say that. And I also remember having conversations with some of my girlfriends, there was this really beautiful black girl that went to my high school and she was the homecoming queen. And she also won Miss Rancho Bernardo, which was the community that we lived in. It was like a pageant. And there was conversation that the only reason that she won either of those was because she was black and because our community was predominantly white and our high school principal was accused of being a racist, that our high school principal purposely did that in order to show that she wasn't a racist. And I believe that. I believe that that was the reason. And now I even looked her up on Facebook. I remember her first and last name and there she is. And she's still beautiful. And I just so desperately want to run and apologize to her for thinking those things and saying those atrocious, hateful things. And it's just agonizing. And I know that this isn't about me, but I wanted to tell that story and tell my feelings because I think that there's a lot of people listening who feel horrible about the way that they've been and or maybe they're just realizing it now as they're listening to this conversation and I think that whatever you're feeling is normal and it's okay to feel bad and you know try to have self-compassion for yourself and this is it's startling it's startling to wake up and make these realizations I think is what I'm trying to say yeah it is startling and there's sort of two pieces I want to point out to that is like one is these are the implicit assumptions that is the structural systematic racism, the institutionalized racism that we're talking about, like that is the culture we grow up in. Those are the assumptions that we inherit and we don't check. And what we're doing right now is checking them. And then the other piece is the social segregation and the physical segregation. That is a product of institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. Like there is a reason that 
communities are not integrated. And there is a reason that our social circles are not integrated. Like that is by design. Like there are zoning laws that produce that. There are, you know, explicit housing regulations and the way that mortgages were allocated and redlining. Like there's a whole history there that produced that. Like this is not by accident. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like Jim Crow, the laws in the South around Jim Crow, those were created. Like these things were created. That's what I'm trying to say is like this thing was built and there's a reason that we have it. And what we need to do is, yes, this produces a whole lot of shame and guilt and like shock and misery. And we've got to cope with it. But the way to cope with it is to find a way forward. Right. Like the way to cope with it is to change it. You know, I don't want us to get stuck in this place where we're guilty and we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I want us to own it. I want us to take responsibility for it and change it. Yes. And that's definitely what I'm looking at too. And I've been asking questions to you and on Facebook and various people and trying to have conversations with various people at the same time as I make my way through these emotions around this. And before we jump into that, let's talk about white privilege a little bit. And how would you describe that to somebody? Well, I think most people have a little semblance of an idea of what it is. And I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding. What it ends up coming off like, I think, to white people who are first getting acquainted with is that people think it means you've got some sort of celebrity status and everything is easy and you always go to the front of the line and you get into the club without paying and or like all this magic mm-hmm. right like it all this magic happens for you and then they resist it and they're like well that my life isn't like that that's not what white privilege is white privilege is basically an unearned advantage that you don't even notice mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. not getting to the club for free it's being able to get in the club at all right that's what it is it's the stuff the advantages we have that we don't even notice And it means that we get callbacks when we send our resume out because we've got white sounding names, Mm -hmm. whereas someone with the exact same qualifications, and there's research about this, who has a black sounding name will not get a callback. It means that when we get a job offer and we've graduated, when we show up, the job is still there, whereas a woman who shows up, and there was a case about this recently, a woman who showed up to start her first day of her new job after graduating university, her job offer was rescinded because she showed up wearing braids. You know, it means that when we as white women go to work with a messy bun, we still look professional. Mm -hmm. But if a woman who is a black woman shows up with her hair unpressed and unstraightened, she's considered looking disheveled and gets sent home. You know, all of those things happen. And this is sort of real life. So we have advantages in that we are considered the norm and we are acceptable just as we are. Right. And black people and people of color have to twist themselves into contortions to be considered acceptable or they have to literally, and there's research about this, be twice as good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to get as far as someone who's white, who has half the qualifications or half the experience. Like this isn't stuff that's getting made up. There's research, it's empirical, it's observable. So that's what privilege is, is these unearned advantages that mean that you are acceptable just as you are. And everyone who doesn't look like you has to do work to look like you. Yeah. Thank you for that and saying it so eloquently. And I feel like what might be common for people listening, and this was sort of kind of where I was, is where when I first heard about white privilege, it must have been years ago, I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, I have it. But, you know, luck of the draw, not my problem. You know what I mean? And I think it wasn't until recently that I was like, oh, so the people that can dismantle racism 
are white people. And that's my next question for you is, and I think it feels like such a huge monumentous task, but I do think that it starts with us. And how can we do that? Right. So you have privilege, whether you want it or not. Right. Right. It is a fact. That's the way it is. So what you can do is use it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we use it every day and we're not aware of using it. We use it to be treated nicely and we go in expecting to be treated with respect in various situations. We expect when we're stopped by police officers to be let off with a warning. We expect certain courtesies and we expect certain treatment. We can use those expectations and the fact that people will give us respect and listen to us to dismantle racism. So I know that because I am a white woman, that other white people will listen to me when I'm saying the same things that people of color are saying, but they don't push back on me. Mm -hmm. They don't Mm -hmm. argue with me. They will listen to me and somehow they trust me. That's racism and white supremacy in action. But what I can do there is leverage the fact that white people will listen to me and take me seriously and believe me in order to advance the anti-racist work that needs to be done in our society. I mean, I see this on a daily basis. I have many friends who are black women and women of color, and they can say exactly the same thing I say. And people jump all over them and resist them and argue with them. And it goes on and on and on. And I will say the exact same thing. And someone will private message me and offer to delete the random thing that they said in reply. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to say, like, I should use this now to become, like, rich and famous. What I'm saying is I can use this privilege that I have to do the anti-racist work that needs to be done. And so we can all do that. I saw a video recently, and it's been around for a while, of a black sister-in-law and a white sister-in-law. They were grocery shopping together. I don't know if you've seen Mm -hmm. it. They were shopping together. Right. So they're grocery shopping together. The white woman cashes out, writes a check, no problem. And she's waiting at the end for her black sister-in-law to come through. And the black sister-in-law is getting treated by the same cashier with disrespect, asking for ID and all this kind of stuff around checks, all this kind of stuff that didn't happen with the white woman. And the white woman intervened and, you know, kind of made a fuss about it. That's using your privilege Mm -hmm. to make a point and to do anti-racist work. So you can use the respect that people give you as a white woman that they automatically give you to start dismantling the racism that produces the privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm still trying to figure out, and I've been asking a lot of questions about how do I do this? You know, I just noticed maybe it was last weekend or the weekend before this is our second summer in this neighborhood. We live in a small town outside of a big city, Greensboro, North Carolina. We live in a small town called Stokesdale and there's a pool near us. And I have noticed that there's less diversity here in Stokesdale than when we lived in Greensboro for a few months. And when we joined this pool, I was there a couple of weeks ago and I looked around and it is a sea of white people. And I saw a little black boy once and he was with a white family. I don't know if he was a doctor or what the situation was. And that is the only time I've seen a person of color there. No Hispanics, no Asian, Middle East, nothing. And so part of me is like, what do I do about that? Like, do I go to the pool board and say like, why are there no black families here? But I think that they're going to say because nobody joins you know, like they're not saying like, no people of color allowed, but it's just because no one's requesting to join. So it's like, what would I be able to do about something like that? So in that case, I'd wonder how and to whom the pool is marketing. 
So, I mean, I don't know the breakdown of your parks and recreation associations or what have you, but like where are flyers being delivered? You know, to whom are they explicitly trying to market? So, yes, you could go to the pool board and ask those questions like who is the pool marketing to and what outreach efforts would they be willing to take? Let's say you and I are organizing a marathon and anyone who registers can show up and run the race. Well, here's the deal is like some of us can't even get to the start line. Yeah. Right? Some of us are on the bus when the gun goes off. We haven't got there yet. So it's not enough to hold the race and expect everything's equal. We actually need to do some work to make sure everybody can get there. Mm-hmm. So that's a piece that we can take on. We can start doing outreach. We can start making sure to explicitly invite people in. That's the other thing that I think white people don't realize. Unless we invite people of color in explicitly, they might assume that they're not welcome. They're not. Yeah, exactly. Well, when you're saying that, I just quickly Googled. So the pool that we go to is in the town next door. It's like literally five minutes away called Oak Ridge, North Carolina. And I on Wikipedia, the demographics, you ready? So the racial makeup of the town is 93.48% white with 4% African American, and then on and on with the other very small amounts of Asian, Native American and other races. So I assume that's probably the reason. So I think right. maybe the bigger question is, why are people of color not moving to these smaller towns? And is that kind of what you were saying about like the zoning stuff? Well, that is. And like you could look at a really terrific piece that can help map this out for us is a piece called The Case for Reparations by Tanahasi Coates. It's in the Atlantic, and it is a superb piece that maps out basically the last 60 years of housing policy in the United States and explains how we have ended up with such segregated communities. And again, it was by design. Hmm. You and I have inherited this, and we live in communities that were shaped like this deliberately. Oh, Kelly. Every day, I feel like there's another layer of the onion that gets pulled back for me. And it's just, I can't even put words around it. Before I get too emotional about it, I want to also say, I think that another thing that we can do, and this is something I plan on doing, is to talk to my children about it. Because I was never talked to about it. And I think that, you know, without throwing my parents too much under the bus, there were definitely some things that were said and in my family growing up. I think that it's definitely going to be a conversation that I have with my children that was not a conversation in my family growing up. Right. And that's superb because this is how we change things in one-on-one conversations with each other. And that's one of the things that we can do to use our privilege is we can have these one-on-one conversations with people who care about us Mm -hmm. and people we care about because they're going to listen to us. They trust us. They care about us. And if we can have these conversations, we can actually, you know, change hearts and minds and start challenging these beliefs. And it's really super valuable to do this work online and reach broad audiences. But where we actually change minds is in one-on-one conversations. So that brings me to another question. Would it be, I don't recommend turning to somebody in the grocery store, you know, the next black person you see and say like, hey, can I talk to you about this? And, but you said like, you know, people you care about. And so do you think that it's, disrespectful to talk to someone that you know that's black and say, I would love to hear about your experience growing up, or I would love to know if there's anything that I have ever done or said that has made you feel uncomfortable. Is that appropriate? 
I can't speak for all black people. You so can't? Like, <laughs> what good are you? I would, I would say when you are in community and in relationship with a person, I think it would be really welcome to reach out to them and say, like, I see what's going on. You know, I'm waking up to this. I love you. I know you must be stressed out. You know, I'm here for you. And yeah, I think it would be lovely and kind to open up those discussions and say, like, when you speak to me and you tell me about your experiences, I'm going to believe you. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing that happens. And black people and people of color will tell us about their experiences of racism. And the first thing we say is like, I can't believe that. Or I don't believe that. Right. Or that's such a one-off thing. Like, it's not a one-off thing. This is a daily thing. So offer our love and support and our willingness to believe. And, you know, the people you're in relationship with, yes, be an ally, be supportive, be there for them. But yeah, don't just randomly approach people on the street because you're going to frighten them. And yell like, Black Lives Matter. Like, yeah. Like <laughs> I would be alarmed if anyone approached me like yeah, that. I would be too. Yeah. People don't go and say that Andrea and Kelly told you to. Uh, okay. I was thinking the other day, I don't know, this might be dramatic, but like, I feel like a lot of what I grew up in was like a lie, you know, it's just like this bubble that was created for me and I benefited from it. I benefited greatly. I still do every day. That is it. You've nailed it. That's what white supremacy is. We have grown up in a lie. And one of the ways I explained it to one of my friends recently is it's like when you're in a marriage and then you realize the guy's been cheating on you all along and you look at the relationship and you're like, I didn't even know what I was in. The reality of what I was in was completely different. And I feel like that's what this is, Mm -hmm. too. And that's why Beyonce's Lemonade was so powerful and why it operated on more than one level is because it's about looking at something and realizing you've grown up in a lie, realizing that you've been living in a lie. That's what white supremacy is. It was invented to lie to us and keep white people comfortable and distance us us Mm -hmm. from the impact it has on people of color. Yeah. From the damage it creates for people of color. Mm-hmm. We did grow up in a lie. It sounds like it's a lot of manipulation. And that's putting it lightly. Yeah. I know. I'm being charitable again. Yeah. <laughs> Baby steps, Kelly. Baby steps yeah. over no, here. And, no, and I, you know, I just want to point out like, to people who are listening, and this isn't to like eviscerate you and I, Andrea, but we right now are assuming that most of the listeners are white, and we are speaking to the white audience. Mm-hmm. And that... <laughs> is exactly, you know, white supremacy and racism in action. Like, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I did with my pro-blogger piece that I told you I was embarrassed about, was I assumed that my audience is white. You and I are assuming that Mm -hmm. your audience is white, and we're speaking to them. We're putting them at the center. We're putting our experience at the center. So, like, what you started with in the beginning is, like, we aren't going to be perfect. We're going to look back, and we're going to be mortified. And we've got to do it anyway. You and I right now, we have to be willing to be embarrassed and screw up and draw attention to the way that we're screwing up so other people can see us doing it and do better. That's what Brene Brown, I think, even models with her work on vulnerability Mm -hmm. is like you have to be willing to fail and be vulnerable to get better. Yes. Thank you for saying that because I didn't say it because I feel like I'm going to throw up. (laughs) I didn't say it to make you no, feel bad. I just want to point out, like, we are in the middle of it. We're not finished, <laughs> you know? And that's why I want to invite other white women in. I don't expect you to be perfect. I expect you just to start doing the work. To start doing And be willing right? to screw up because vastly better than ignoring it. Than doing nothing. Right. And, and we will break it. We will 
fix it. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I think it starts with us. And I think it starts with the next generation that we are raising. And I just couldn't go on and not say anything else. And again, like if I had waited until I had more guests to line up and all my questions perfectly, and I was more educated and had read more articles, I was going to be waiting and waiting and waiting. And this conversation, again, was about me practicing courage and talking about something that I am a by no means an expert in and b still afraid to talk about. And I mean, I have privilege coming out of my pores and there's just so many things swirling around, but I had to have you on and I'm so glad that you're here. And gosh, I mean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time being a mom of five children and being a writer and an author, and you've been not feeling well. And I just so appreciate it. And just to kind of conclude, is there any other words of wisdom or pieces of advice or anything that you want to leave the listeners with before we say goodbye? I just want to encourage us not to wait until we have it figured out and to get to work figuring it out. And the big shame isn't that we grew up in a lie. The big shame is in doing nothing to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So we can live for that and we can do that and we can use our lives and we can do it in a million little everyday ways. We can have one-on-one conversations with people. We can speak up against injustice and oppression everywhere we see it. And as soon as we start waking up, we're going to start seeing it everywhere. And we can work to support the people doing the work to end racism. You know, we can take a stand for Black Lives Matter. We can take courses about dismantling our privilege. Like, we can do this work. We are wildly capable. We have incredible capacities. And when we decide that this is going to happen, then it is going to happen. And I just want to say, you know, thank you for having me on. And thank you to everyone for listening and caring, because this is where it starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it does. It starts with conversations like these. And I just want to say, too, that it wasn't just last week that I realized about, you know, my own privilege and what institutionalized racism is and all of those things. I think it was right around the time when George Zimmerman was acquitted. And I remember just kind of thinking to myself, something's going on and it's not okay. And thank goodness for social media, because I was just inundated by all these articles and statements from people and them speaking out. And I quietly started to read and read and read. And I was saving articles and going back to them. And you know what it was, Kelly? I just started paying attention. I just started paying attention instead of thinking, well, not my problem. That's too bad for them. You know, they can dismantle it themselves because it's not mine. And I think that's really sort of what I had to flip the script on and just say, like, look in the mirror and say, like, this is your problem. This absolutely 100% is your problem. So saying all that, just to say to my people that we're not asking you to go out and start shouting from the rooftops about this. But I think that my challenge and my ask for the listeners is just to start paying attention. Right. Read and listen Mm -hmm. and believe. Mm -hmm. I love that. Read and listen and believe. So quick question for you. You said that there's courses on this. Do you have some recommendations that we can put in the show? Oh, I do. Desiree Attaway, who we've talked about in this podcast, and her business partner, Erica Hines, just launched a course today specifically aimed at white people who want to dismantle their privilege and figure out how to bring diversity into their workplaces, into their business, into their platforms, and really 
realize that diversity is an asset rather than a problem to be managed. Okay. So, you know, she's a genius. Erica Hines is a genius. They're both so lovely, charming, funny, and they tell the truth and they're going to make change. So they are an amazing resource and I highly recommend that course. Okay, We will for sure link to that in the show notes, yourkickasslife.com forward slash 112. Thank you so much, Kelly. And you are an amazing writer yourself. And I'm going to have you back on. We have a whole nother topic to talk about when Kelly is good and ready. And I can't wait to introduce that to you all. And everything's going to be in the show notes, yourkickasslife.com forward slash 112. And until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.